0: May the Lord in the new year give us a renewed perspective of the Lord, and I love that His mercies are new every morning. That we don't have to have a new year to be reminded of that every day, because it gives us new days and new chances and new life. Um, yeah, may the Lord take our faith to greater heights. And thinking about going higher, it's really a liability unless your roots are well established, right? Um, we have this tree that Laura's been tending to for several years, and it's like, there's this balance between trying to get it well supported so it's not falling over when the cat decides that it's going to be its litter box, the pot, or, uh, the wind's just going to blow it over. So, the wind will, will strengthen those roots to go down. It needs those supporting things, but at a point, it, uh, like, if we want to go higher or advance in our faith, we do need those roots to go down and, and also to interlace with others, um, like those great sequoia trees. Yeah. That great house, it will collapse unless it's founded on the rock. And praise the Lord, he says, Jesus says, if we hear his words and do them, he likens us to a house on a rock, no matter how the waves crash, the wind blows, it stays strong. And we can stay strong, though we, we be shaken and rattled and wondering if we can hold on. Um, So we get to the the end of Galatians today, and uh, why don't we pray? Thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is awesome that you have so much to teach us about yourself and about how to live this life in a way that pleases you. We pray as we read it, you would speak to our hearts, you would minister to each one. And as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary, that you just impact us, Lord. You would fill us with your spirit that this time would be marked by the Spirit moving and ministering and speaking to hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but as I've studied through Galatians, it's kind of been like hiking, like my life leading up to it was uh, hiking through some dense undergrowth, some bush, and then kind of making this turn and coming out on this great vista. And, And really, it's been such a dazzling display of God's grace and His mercy. And it's just, have you guys ever been like hiking in a valley or it's been going for a while and you finally come to a place where you have a bit of a vista vantage point? That's really what it is, but it's a picture of God's grace and how we are free from the curse of the law. We are free from sin, and now we are free to serve God. Um, so it's been awe-inspiring really. A little background. Christians in Asia Minor, they had fallen into the error, and we can too, of legalism. And they were saying, well, it's good to follow Jesus, it's good to trust in Him, but you also must keep the law of Moses to be saved. And in doing so, they were abandoning the grace and the Savior who had saved them. And though they had been deceived, if they would repent and return, there was hope for them. And there's hope for us too when we repent. Instead of God's grace making us lawless, and that was the concern. Hey, if you remove the law, and you don't follow the law anymore, won't you be lawless? And it's like, no, because Jesus is righteous. Not only has he given us his righteousness through, by grace through faith, but he leads us to do righteously. He teaches us and leads us in the right way all the time. So it's not just words written on tablets of stone that govern us, but his love that governs us in every interaction. Not because we have to, but because he loves us and he leads us in what to do. So, what Paul taught was a revelation. It's no longer Christians who live, but Christ in them. And he lives through us. So, starting in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. As he did many times in this letter, he calls them his brethren. He calls these... Gentile believers, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and he puts into practice what he's telling them to do. He doesn't say, do as I say, not as I do. He actually has been demonstrating this sort of gentleness with them, despite their heresy, and they had been deceived, and leading others astray. He says, when you see someone overtaken in a fault, deal with them gently, with meekness, seeking to restore them. So it's the aim of their restoration that was key. Whenever we walk, whenever we're standing, there is the potential we fall. Falling wasn't really an issue until we started, uh, standing and walking and running. Do you question the moral character of someone if they slipped on a bit of ice? No. Why would you? It's not really a moral judgment. They just have a bad sense of balance, or they just were caught off guard, or weren't wearing the right footwear. There's a lot of Reasons why somebody could legitimately fall, and there's no connection with their morality or their godliness or spirituality. So we shouldn't be doubting the salvation of people who are overtaken with a fault. If they're overtaken with a fault, we need to wonder: really going to or not. We're now making a moral judgment based upon, and and their eternal salvation hangs in the balance based upon what we perceive. It takes it doesn't take a Christian to see, fault in, to see a fault in someone else, right? Mm. No. Someone who doesn't even know the Lord can know the difference between right and wrong. They know, and that's hypocrisy. They can see it. But it takes one who's walking in the Holy Spirit to restore someone who's overtaken the fault with gentleness and meekness. That does take the People are quick to point out faults in others. Romans 2 1 says, if you see a fault in someone else, well, you're a the same thing. Oh, that's pretty searching. Romans 2 1. It says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So if you're suspicious about, about you know, someone, oh I think he's hot. I bet she's doing this now. Guess what you're doing? Or else you wouldn't have even thought of it. You wouldn't have even gone there in your mind, except it's common to your life. It's common to the natural way you interact. So, of course, you begin to put your your tendencies on people. It's suspicious there to you. And when you're suspicious of someone, there's no agreement. There's no connection. Sure. So... Uh, these, these, uh, Judaizers, those who demanded compliance to the law, those who said, you must be circumcised to be saved, you have to keep the Sabbath days, they, they demanded compliance, and they quickly ostracized any who opposed, them, believing that they were the spiritual ones. You we're the spiritual ones, we are doing the right thing, they're doing the wrong thing. Paul says, if you're really spiritual, if you really are the spiritual ones, seek to restore those who are, in sin, who are overtaken in a fall. He doesn't even say those who are sinners. He says overtaken in a fall. Those who have stumbled, those who have fallen, seek to restore them. Maybe they don't even realize they've been wrong. Scott says this about the word restore. rizzo it means put in order, or so restore to a former condition, used in secular Greek, as a medical term for setting a fracture or dislocated bone. It's applied in Mark 1, to the apostles who were mending their neck. Now, can you imagine, as a parent, if your child's been playing in the backyard and decide to jump from the height, jump off the roof, meters, you know, hey, I can fly. they jump off the roof, lay on the ground, break their legs. Can you imagine running out there? You see them, you see the leg, it's definitely not in the right shape, and you go, rather annoyed. That'll teach you not to jump off such heights. You shouldn't be taking such risks and then leave. Not even helping them. Because you want them to understand they've done You want them to know how, what a silly decision that was. So you're going to punish them. Silly, right? This error of judgment from jumping off the roof does not mean that you should withhold medical treatment or care of. Try to comfort them in their pain. And try to restore them to a place where they can walk in. It says this is applied, the same word, to the apostles who were mending their nets. It would be very strange if you would say, hmm, some fisherman you are, you can mend nets? I really doubt that that's your profession at all. Well, because they were using their nets, they had to mend them. And as we walk through this life, we will stumble and we will fall. We will be overtaken with the trespass. And it's not because our salvation is hanging in balance. We're saved by the grace of God. But we aren't to judge one another. We aren't to ostracize. We're to seek their restoration gently and meekly, understanding that we can have the same issue. We can be blind in an area, and we can stumble and fall on that ice. We can feel really... You know, I've seen the video of the guy who's watching people come by this little strip of ice and fall one after another. And every time they (laughs) fall, he's like, kind of of mocking them instead of saying, whoa guys, careful, there's some people have fallen on this little patch of ice. Don't walk this way. Be careful. He was just laughing when people fell. But he was no more able to walk on that ice. He wasn't walking on that ice. When we notice a fault in others, we should acknowledge we had, we have had faults, and we have them now. Ones that we don't even realize. We too can be overtaken. Our tendency is to look down on, or ignore, or justify, or ostracize those who have a fault. Rather than seeking a restored relationship with God, for them and with us as well. Years ago, when I was living in the States, there was a boy from the group who was watching my children. I don't know how old he was at the time. Maybe 8 ate. Uh, but he decided he was going to try a backflip on the train game. and And uh, interestingly, he said, be ready to call 911 if this doesn't go right? He probably should have been circumspect and not done it. But he did, and he dislocated his knee. So, uh... He called me. I was about five minutes away, so I ran over there, and I see him on the trampoline in agony, his knee is like, whoa, there's this a lot. So something going on here that's not right. Something's wrong with this knee. And at that moment, would it have been right for me to say, you know, how irresponsible uh You know, I'm just going to take my kids right now. You're never permitted to watch my child again. Uh, make fun of him because he's struggling. Uh, leave him? Or slap him around a little bit because I'm a bit frustrated with him. Like there's all these things that I like, no. The guy is in agony, he's in pain. He called me, he confessed his problem, and I'm to seek his restoration. With compassion. I'm to call his mom and make sure that alright, is it alright if I call him Andrew? So Andrew is just coming. Not taking it personally. We can take calls personally. When someone is overtaken with a call, we can take it as an offense to me. And I, I own it. But it was intentional and malicious. Mm-hmm. It's really against God. It wasn't against me at all. We can resent them, but love seeks restoration. Restoring and redeeming sinners cost Jesus everything. He gave us life so we, who were not only overtaken with trespasses, but completely given over to sinful Desires and habits, thoughts, and a heart that was just wicked before the Lord. He he gave everything to redeem us and restore us to relationship. Crazy for that. Galatians 6, verse 2 Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each shall bear his own load. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. I love the verse in John. It says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus has given us a law which transcends the law of Moses. The command to love one another as he loves us. In John 13, 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What love you demonstrate by coming to help for our sins. And he says, because of God's love for you, when you see someone struggling under a burden or a load that's bringing them down, that's weighing them down, seek to help them. Seek to bear that burden alongside. Them. There are burdens we do bear alone, but there are ways that we can help others with their burdens. The burdens we bear alone are like the guilt of sin. Like my wife and my my sons will not be held accountable for the sin that I have chosen. Right? That's between me and God. The day of judgment. You cannot stand before God on the day of judgment for someone else. Like you're. I'm on behalf of someone, and I am going to take their judgment. You can't do that because it's appointed for ma- every man once to die, and then the judge will all receive be judged, And that's something between you and God. But there are ways we can help one another. I've seen people in our fellowship, when there's someone who's had a surgery, provide meals without even being asked. Supplying so meals and saying, hey, can I give you something? Can I help out? Can I be there for you? Now, I can't have your surgery for you. Right. If you need uh, a surgical procedure, I can't say, I'll stand in for you and take that surgery. You? Uh, you have to go through that surgery. But there's ways that I can help you as that, you're bearing that burden. When there was a woman that was brought before Jesus caught in adultery, he didn't accuse her, he didn't pick up stones, but he said, go and sin no more. She had a responsibility now to live in light of what Jesus had said. She knew that adultery was wrong. And Jesus wasn't going to get the man or that person out of her life that she was saving him. But that was for her to do. She could do it through his strength. It says, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We are so greatly valued and loved by God, and and we're unworthy of every blessing that gives witness by his grace. We're we're nothing in the sense that we can offer nothing good for God of ourselves. Paul said there's nothing good in you. There's Christ in you. And we should always take the word of God personally. You know, have you ever preface this statement by saying, Don't take this personally, but you say something that could be taken personally, would be offensive. Um, but we should always take the Bible personally as far as this is for me. It's not for my spouse. This is not for my child. This is for me to take to heart myself and actually examine my life. You know, if you were to pick up a transparency and line it up with another picture, do the lines match up? Is there agreement between what the Bible says I should do and what I'm actually doing? It's not for us to wield this exhortation to bear one another's burdens into bear my burden. Like you have a responsibility for God to bear one of those burdens. I'm someone else, and you need to bear my burden. Right? That would be using this verse for selfishness. God didn't command husbands to love their wives, so the wife would say, You're not loving me, it's for us to look at our own walk and say, Am I doing my part before God, and what I should be doing? It's pride that makes selfish decisions. It's pride which compels us to downplay our need. And it's pride which causes us to say, "No, I've got this. I really don't need any help right now." When you could use help, and you know, letting someone help you is a great blessing to them because they will be rewarded for the Lord for their obedience. So why deny someone else the eternal reward of obedience to God in helping out? Believe it or not, we trust ourselves often more than others or the Word of God. <coughs> Are you, have you guys ever been, and this is like shooting fishing in a barrel, so, have you ever been deceived by someone who said, this is what you're getting with the package, and you buy the package, and oh, it doesn't really do what it says. Or someone has lied or been deceptive in some way. This car is of this quality. I finally, get the car in there, or oh, something was wrong. And you never said that, never displayed that. So we can become quite concerned that other people are going to try to deceive me and I need to be on guard. Well, do you know that we can be self deceived? We probably have much more concern about being tricked or deceived by others than we are of being tricked by ourselves and our own hearts. Verse four, it tells us to examine our own work, if we're practicing what we'll Paul's preaching. When Peter asked Jesus about John, what about this guy? He says, "What's that to you? You follow me. doesn't matter." And, and Jesus had just told Peter to do, he gave him three commands: "Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep." And Instead of saying, "Lord, how do I do that?" He says, "What about him?" And we can do the same thing. Well, i I've it. I've forgiven. I forgive. What, shouldn't they do something? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But you do what Jesus says. We're to bear one another's burdens, but we're also to carry our own load. Burdens in verse 2, it's a heavy burden or a weight that's dragging someone down. In verse 5, that load, it's a burden that's personal and not transferable. Kind of like a backpack. A backpack is really to be worn by one person. I have yet to this day, and it may have happened sometime, where one person puts one arm in the backpack, and somebody else, for some reason, has their arm in the backpack, and they're walking together with a backpack. Probably not. They say, hey, I've carried this long enough. You carry, right? You pass the whole backpack, not just the it. So that's the burden that you are called to bear yourself. We bear one of those burdens, but you're called to carry your own load. There are things that God has put in your life. There's a course that he has you on that your responsibility before God. Yep. Unique roles and responsibilities. Like I'm called to be a husband to my wife, my dad to my kids. No one else in here before God is called to be a husband to my wife. And if there's someone who thinks they should, something's wrong, okay? <laughs> so, I appreciate the sentiment kind of, but not really. If you're a youth, your responsibility is to honor your father and mother, to obey them. That's what you're called to do right now. Not out of obligation, compelled by God's love for you. God is love. He's a father for you. Even if you think whatever of your parents, before God, that's your responsibility. And a practical example Paul gives of bearing one of those burdens was to provide for the practical needs of ministry. In verse 6, under law, people would bring uh, tithes and offerings, and the priests and their families would eat of these offerings as they were dedicated to the service of God. And those who serve the Lord in dedicated leadership or teaching roles, like Paul, he's saying, you know, that's a way that you can bear one of those burdens. They're laboring in the scriptures for you, and you can supply some of their temporal needs. To share in all good things with, that's not just, uh, money, but words of exhortation, encouragement. Everything that God supplies, let's be generous with one another, whoever we are. So rather than looking for people to bear our burden, we are to examine our own work, that we're bearing one of those burdens and also carrying the load of not the sun. Because he knows. It's like when you go on a walk with your kids, and you realize the terrain, it's going to be long and hot. So you, you've you loaded yourself down with extra water and the sunscreen and stuff. Maybe you've given them something like carry but you wouldn't load them down with everything. He's five years old now. possibly manage that. He that, but you may give him something to carry. And God's gracious with us, too. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. For the second time in just a few verses, Paul has warned us about being deceived. So we know we can be deceived. Uh, and God will see through it that we reap what we sow. We've established earlier in the book that we also reap where we have not sown. Quite often we hear this, you know, you'll reap what you sow spoken in a very negative sense. you do the bad thing, the bad thing going to happen to you. But the fact is, God causes people to reap where they had not sown. That so we have to make much room for God's grace. Because God's people, he led them out of Egypt and he brought them from lands that were plowed and planted and vineyards that were established and grown houses they didn't build. And God's like, here you go. Enter in. Through faith, enter in and receive all these things you didn't work for, you didn't earn. Never even entered in your mind there was such an oasis of beauty. But here you go. But at the same time, we shouldn't plant peach trees and expect oranges, right? We shouldn't be planting one thing, you're sowing to the flesh, and then think that it's going to benefit you spiritually. It can't happen. It won't work. Music wrote this in his commentary. Paul is not promoting some law of spiritual karma that ensures we will get good when we do good, or always get bad when we do bad. If there were such an absolute spiritual law, it would surely damn us all. I was like, well, it would. If If we always reap what you sow, What are the wages of sin? Death. And man, I'd have been having I would have had to make good on that payment a long time ago. So by God's grace, He's given us time for He's patient with us. But at the same time, we have to remember, you will reap what you sow. Um, There are consequences short and long term for our choices. Proverbs twenty six twenty seven it says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. There is a cause and an effect with our choices. And there's so many spiritual examples, or scriptural examples of this. I got a kick out of thinking of one. Like uh Jacob, he pretends to be Esau to receive his, his brother's blessing, right? But what happens after he goes to Laban and he says, I'll work for your daughter Rachel for seven years. He has his wedding night, wakes up in the morning. Whoa, not Rachel, Leah, her sister. You know, the old bait and switch. He had done the bait and switch with his dad, and now he had the bait and switch done on him. And he wasn't very happy about it, but that was the consequence of his actions. Uh, God, when he judged the people of Eden, for the way that they refused to help the Israelites, in Obadiah 1.15, it says, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations near, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall be upon your own head. How about when Samuel took up the sword to execute King Agath of the Amalekites? He says, as your sword has rendered women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. So the thing that you've done, it's now coming back to life. So it's not a spiritual karma. But there is a principle there we need to lay to heart. And it's on both the negative and the positive side. I tend personally and admittedly to focus on the negative side. But there's a positive side that we cannot ignore, and that's actually the emphasis of the passage. So before we move on, how do we sow to the flesh? Because he says that if we sow to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap of the Spirit everlasting life. We sow to the flesh by doing the works of the flesh that we talked about in the previous chapter, chapter 5. For example, if I give place to greed in my heart, then I will be increasingly selfish. That's going to affect the way that I relate to other people and to God. I'll begin to justify cheating to try to gain some extra income. Uh, and greed's not restricted to money. It, it's not just about money. It's really about me and how I can better myself and improve my standing. It's about my status. And and it begins to, its tendrils really begin to lead through my whole life. It may be on the day of judgment because of the place that I've given greed unchecked in my life that I will forfeit a great eternal reward that God has prepared for me. So I will be forfeiting these benefits that God had set aside for me because of my choices. Moses, he wasn't able to enter the promised land because he he disobeyed God, right? God said, speak to the people. And he hit the rock twice. And so God said, well, you can see the light, but you're not going to enter it. So there was a consequence in his life. He still went to heaven. But, there was a consequence. So, sowing to the Spirit. We don't, we can't sow to the Spirit unless the Holy Spirit's inside us. If we've been born again through, by grace through faith in Jesus. And when we see the works of the flesh evident in our lives, we're called to rip it out of there, like that, that uh, weed of greed. To say, hey, that is in the wrong place. That should not be here. Get rid of it. And then seek to do the thing that pleases God, to walk and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit that we also talked about last week. We don't earn salvation by good works, but because the Holy Spirit lives within us, we are enabled to do these good works, and they will be fruitful. It's really cool, too, how temporal things can be converted into eternal rewards. Jesus said, if you give a cup of water, you just offer a drink of water to someone in the name of a disciple, you will have a reward. More than just thanks from that person. An eternal reward. And so, if God would so reward us for just giving a glass of water to someone who's thirsty, how much more we share the living water of Jesus Christ. We share His gift. An experienced farmer, he plants particular seed. He expects a certain crop. But sometimes there is a bumper crop. And really that's how it is when we serve Jesus. And we do the things he asks us to do. He gives us more blessing and we're able to contain or count it. Where it's like, you know what? I don't even know how much grain. I don't know how much produce I have. It's way more than I can contain. It's past counting. And really that's how it is with our Lord. Because he knows our needs and he'll abundantly supply them. Not just for our comfort so we can minister that. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap, if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The emphasis Paul makes is on the positive side. He just doesn't say, you reap what you sow to scare people straight. That's not really the main point. But he's encouraging them to keep giving when it costs you, keep doing good, even when it doesn't seem to be doing much and there doesn't seem to be any effect, when there's resistance within you and without, when you are being persecuted, when your heart is starting to lose momentum and interest and hope and and nothing seems to be happening. And that's what happens when you sow something, right? There's a long delay between sowing the seed and having it grow. You don't receive the same thing you sow. You don't plant an apple seed and receive an apple in due time. The tree begins to grow, and it takes years for those branches to be strong enough to support fruit. grows the tree actually limbs fall off. It's not fruitful then. So there can be a long delay and you say, Don't lose heart in doing that good thing because you will lose there there is a temptation to lose heart. And to give in to that feeling like this is hopeless. Why am I bothering? Why am I even trying anymore? I don't seem to be getting anywhere. I've been planting seeds here and just over and over and nothing. And we point to that barren ground and we say, seed? Why? Why do I even bother? Well, because what God says here: don't be weary in doing the good thing. You will reap if you faint not. You do not lose heart. Patience, that's a good thing. And it's always in season. Some fruit is not always in season, it's super expensive. Uh, buying a lime, sometimes I'm shocking. $30 a year, that's phenomenal. I should plant a lime tree. Haven't got around to that yet. Um, it's, it's really easy to grow weary when we don't see evidence of the progress we're looking for. And so we start looking to progress or change, and we, with great joy in this little thing. But if our eyes are on that, our dependence is on other people and arbitrary things, rather than God, who's leading us to do that thing. So if our focus is on the Lord, who's told us to be planting that seed, whether or not you see a change in you, it's not... Now, when we see that, those weeds beginning to grow, and those sprouts popping up, maybe, Rejoice in it. But our hearts aren't set on that, because a great hailstorm is all it needs, starting over. But was it a good thing we did to plant that? Oh, yeah. Well, then keep doing it. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. And this is a key point. We don't always reap the same thing we sow. We, we put money in the bank, not so we can get some um, Commonwealth Bank merch. Right, like I want that Commonwealth hat, Commonwealth vest. No, you put your money in the bank to protect it, but also to gain interest. You want the same thing out of what you're putting in, right? You're putting money into the bank because you want money. You want your money to be working for you. You want it to be protected. That's the kind of return you want. If you were getting another kind of return, you feel a bit cheated. If all they offered you was ballpoint pens and you know status, you're with us. And you get a card. So, and we can be like this though, with with others. Like I did this for you, so you should do something for me, and we get to decide what's fair. The world gives the same. The world gives to receive the same return, like one hand washing another. But when it comes to the Lord's work, we might give money, and we never see any tangible results of how the Lord used it or what our reward might be, but we can know he will reward us because he's seen it all. You might help someone rake leaves down the street, and that might open up a a door of opportunity to to minister to her and to share the gospel with her and to share God's love with a lonely person. A door opened up. That money alone could never have opened. God opened that door, and that was a gift. We can walk through it. We had that opportunity because we were walking in step with Jesus. He led us to do something. When we do our work as unto Him, led by Him, He gives us benefits far greater than money or praise from people. The world's packed with temptations to give up, to quit, to lose heart but be content in God's promise. In due season you will reap. In Acts chapter 1, it says, It's not for you to know the times and seasons the Lord has put you God knows the seasons, and he knows what season you're in, he knows the season he's bringing you to, and he knows what's lying ahead of you for eternity. So we can trust in that. You know, the God who created the seasons of life and the seasons that we live through year after year he understands what sees my like and how to bring me to the next step. He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us be to all, especially to the household of faith. Let's not be thinking that others have more opportunity than you to do good works. Interesting, this word, opportunity, the Greek word for this word, it's twice translated opportunity, 64 times it's rendered time. As we have time, I could say. it says opportunity. I think that's because it's a chance, it's an opportunity. But I like thinking of it as time as well. As we have time, and you have all the time there is. And if you say you have no time, I urge you to get out your birth certificate. And you look at how much time God's already given you. That is time that you can, no one can deny. Not even you. Well, you could. You could say, well, I'm actually 40, but uh, God knows, and you probably know too. Um, we don't need to know how old each person is. I, there was a lady named E, who was the, the secretary of our church, and she was talking about her birthday and how great it was. Uh, this is just one of those life lessons all this lavish on uh, little side note. But she was all happy about her birthday, and I was probably and I'm like, well, how old are you going to be? She's never asked a woman how old she is. And it was real stern. I'm like, oh, I, I, think, I don't think I made that mistake again. But, but it was, it made an indelible impression upon that young mind. Don't ask. If they, if they are comfortable, they can tell you. Uh, so yeah, God's giving you that much time. And it's like, whoa, 50 years. 13 years, however many years. God's given you that, and you don't know how much time you have left, but whatever whatever day you have placed before you, you can use that, seize the opportunity for him to put in a good word for him. So you don't have to look for opportunities. We have opportunities all the time because we have time. Now, we can invest our time in whatever we feel like, but if we're led by the Spirit, we'll seek to use that time to serve the spirit and to help bear one of those burdens and to the law of and to carry that load that he's given people to carry. That's a pretty full life if you're doing all this stuff, right? So it's not just to, to to imagine that this need exists, but to meet that need as close to before you I don't know why, but when it comes to helping others I can have this tendency to be largely romantic and have this kind of fantastic idea of how much good I could do for so many people. But the fact is, God put me in a house with people. God's connected me with people. As I go to the shops, I run into people. When I'm talking about Telstra and how this murder messed up, I'm talking to a person who's in India that I can put in a good word to Jesus about. Right? That, I have the time, I have the opportunity, so let's do that. When we're walking in step with Jesus, he provides opportunity good. Now, an opportunity, it's often unplanned, and it's often unexpected, and it's often inconvenient, and it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time, it's going to cost you effort, and it will involve risk. You show me an opportunity that doesn't involve risk. In Every opportunity involves risk. In it will cost you something. Opportunities—they're chances. They provide no promise of lasting that But That's what God's giving you. Once you realize an opportunity is an inconvenience gift from God with your name on it, that inconvenience. You know, you receive a gift of how oh, much? You return it, you get the money, anything least that's that. Well, uh, God gives you opportunities that are gifts that are gift things you You to keep your name off it. And you can choose to return it. You don't get it, you and get it off the But if you want to redeem that fruit from no the you take the opportunity as, as that gift to you, with all your might, as unto the Lord, do that thing. Know he's giving you all the time there is. Not one person has more time than another. We all have twenty-four hours in a day. He's giving you all that you could possibly have. Will so you use that time for him? Verse eleven. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. But they desired to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul often made a practice in his letters, especially toward the end, that he would write them himself. Many times he dictated that, and wrote it down. And he has this personal touch to end. There's a lot of theories as to why he's drawing a people in these large letters. Some say his vision was poor, and so he wrote big. Uh, others say, I would lean towards this, that he wrote in the equivalent of all caps to it say, here it is, guys. I've written this far but This is what I want you to get from this. As many as wanting to be circumcised to make that good soul in the flesh, they do so to avoid being persecuted. They're looking to, to dodge that uh, stigma that we're going to talk about in a second. To follow Christ. To avoid being persecuted. And it wasn't about keeping the law. It was about pleasing men. It wasn't about pleasing God. It's like you need to do these things to show that you're you're part of the group, that you are faithful. This is a, this is a, a sign of your piety. Okay. And he says they're hypocrites because they're telling you to be circumcised, to keep part of the law, but they don't keep it themselves. They want to boast in what you've done to your body, but they're not serving the Lord. They're not willing to suffer shame for him. Friends, nothing. Really comes from fear of the They were afraid to be persecuted. Are there things that we choose not to do because we're afraid we must persecuted for? Good. And if I can think of what those things are, I'm doing those things without fear. Because I of fear of God. Not me. Persecution for Christ is a reason to rejoice, for great is our reward. He said, Nathan six twenty six Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers, the false prophets. Now we could be in the flesh and uh, try to use the first half of the story to like It's not right that nobody likes me as well because we are in the church. Not not because the problem of Jesus. That's nothing to do with it. But see the false prophets they told the people what they wanted to hear. They tried to please them and they said very pleasing things. And so if we're just saying the things that people want to hear, that's what the false prophets is. Can we speak the truth as God means it? Not like, this is what I want you to understand. But the thing that God is talking is to say. Graciously, merciful, and false The way we say it matters. Galatians 6 verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. The Judaizers wanted to boast in their circumcision movement. You know, they were getting a lot of people to their side. But Paul's like, I'm not going to boast in the number of conversions and baptisms and churches that have been planted. My only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. That is my boast. Not in myself, not in what I've done. He didn't look upon his life to see what I've accomplished. He says, look at what Jesus did. Look at what he did on the cross. Look at how he's made us new creation by his grace, by grace, through faith alone, not by work. For That's how we've been made righteous. That's how we can go to heaven. It's not because we've earned anything. They celebrated the circumcision of Gentiles who, who boasted in the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, crucifixion is so shameful. A lot of the Romans wouldn't even say the word. They would use this euphemism, which translated from Latin was to be hung on the unlucky tree. Ah, that long. That they they didn't even like to say the word because it was such a horrendous, terrible, torturous death. It was ugly and people were uncomfortable to even talk about. It. They didn't even want to mention the cross. But Paul says, that's not true. That's the thing I think that Jesus has. And he's taken upon me the curse that he's taken upon himself, my sin, and the curse that I deserve he took upon himself, so I could be set free. That I can be a new creation, because the Holy Spirit now lives within me. And he says, in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availed anything, but a new creation. Keeping the law never saved the soul. It couldn't change a single heart. It didn't make a person righteous. All it did was condemn you. But being in Christ changes all. In Christ, circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't avail anything. It has as much spiritual significance to skin your knee and a scar that you have from a child from childhood. It doesn't make you right before God. After Joseph died in Egypt, it says his body was embalmed, prepared in Egyptian fashion, and historical evidence, archaeological discoveries, it shows that when those rulers used to carry, they were buried were put in ornaments with coffins and large chambers with tons of food and gold and uh, tools and uh, even a boat, you know, in case they needed to go somewhere. Like, it was all to help them in the afterlife. And and the reason that they found it is because they never used it. All that food that that's still there. All that clothing still there. Um, those weapons unused. Did all that well, and stuff helped the departed. No, because he was dead. He was departed. He or she was gone. So they couldn't use that stuff. And that's how the law is for us. It does not benefit us at all. It does not save us. This week it made the news that in Russia there was an 11-month-old baby that was found alive in rubble 35 hours After the building had collapsed. And people were just celebrating the life of this child. That's why the rescuers and people all over the globe were like, how awesome, that baby's alive. They didn't celebrate the fact that it was a boy or that he had brown hair. That's totally inconsequential. The fact is, that baby needed medical attention. the, The hospital but the fact that he's alive is what matters. And that's what Paul is saying. We've been made new creations in Christ. We've been made alive. Circumcised or not, that has no bearing on anything. We are now alive in Christ. We are made new in him. We have a righteousness that we could never earned on our own. That's the reason to celebrate. Not eye color, hair color, the, the clothing preferences that people may have. doesn't matter. What matters is what Jesus has done on Calvary. We enter into that the Church. Final passage there. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Paul says, As many as walk according to this rule. What rule are we to walk into? Well, we're made righteous by faith in Jesus alone, by God's grace, not through the works of the law. There's mercy and peace for all who hope in Christ. Paul says, I'm not going to be troubled. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul had been marked by circumcision. He did not rejoice in that. It was the marks of the living Savior in his life. God had his mark on him. God had marked him. And the word mark there is stigma. Stigma. You didn't even know you spoke Greek, but you do. That word is the same in Greek and English. Stigma means a mark incised or punched for recognition of ownership. Figures scar of service, a mark. It was a badge of shame. And it says, I wear this mark. Christ has marked my life. Now, it's true that the skin of Paul's back was thick from the beatings from the flogging. He had been stoned once and left for dead. He had suffered much physically for the sake of Christ. Those events left marks. But he's not boasting in these. He acknowledges that they exist. But if he boasted in those marks, those physical marks, he would be doing the exact same thing for legalists do. And see, I follow God. Look at my back. Look at here. Look at there. But no. His life is marked by Jesus Christ. He's speaking of the fruit of the Spirit that was now evident in his life. Whether it was once hatred, he was compassionate. He had love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Whether it was once pride, selfishness, hatred, and wrath. Jesus had marked him. He was a new creation. He had been uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Yet he, he was new. He was a new man. The grace of Lord Jesus was with him and will be with all who trusted. So if you could please turn to John twelve, we're gonna celebrate union's day. So remember the price Jesus paid. As we were praying this morning, I was reminded of how Jesus in Isaiah fifty three four, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows; yet we did esteem stricken sin and God and someone's sorrowful or when you're sorrowful, you may think that you're the only one who can bear that burden. But Jesus carried that. He has carried us sorrows, and He has borne our grief. The things that grieve our hearts, He carries our grief. You don't have to bear those alone. That's not just like your personal backpack you have to wear. He's carried those. And as true as you are saved, He has carried those for you. He walks with you. Praise the Lord for that. So during the Passover feast, there were Greeks that came to see Jesus. And the disciples say, hey, these guys want to see you. And Jesus responded like this in John 12. So Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my Father, will honor. When we think of Jesus being glorified, I often think of his resurrection, right? He had died and he's raised in eternal glory. But the hour of glory he focuses on was his crucifixion. He says, The hour has come, not for his rising from the dead, but to die on the cross. Crazy, huh? That in Him taking our burdens upon Himself, our burden of sin judgment, and judgment, the curse of the law that was nailed to the cross, He's like, "This is glorious! This is glorious! What I'm doing on the cross, what I will accomplish by my decease, to give us new life, that it would be a glorious demonstration of God's love, that would bear much fruit." Does that just blow your mind? At God's like. Now is the time for me to be glorified, as I bear that cross, as those marks are put on my flesh, that those marks that were a badge of shame, so we can be marked by them. Can I please have the worshiping come up? As we consider those marks that the crucifixion left on the hands and feet and side of Jesus. I ask you, has Jesus' light made marks on you? Does Jesus mark your life? Do you bear in your body the marks of Jesus? Does his love, joy, and peace mark your life? Do we desire that it would be more evident? Not that we would glory in the scars. But that He's alive and lives in me. He's made me a new creation. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. So take heart. Let's think on what Jesus has done and all He has accomplished, and may He through our lives. It says there that that grain of wheat, unless it falls and dies, so it remains alone. But if it's carried, it dies it be too much fruit. So may the Lord provide such fruit from our lives too. Because his life has been so much more life than be fruitful. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for his sacrifice and that he bore those bore that cross to Calvary. Thank you that he was willing to die so we could live. Thank you for all the good that he did as he walked this earth. All the people he helped, all the words he spoke, the kindness and the gentleness and the love he displayed. Lord, we desire that that would mark our lives too. That the way that you were patient, Lord, give us such patience and the love that we see, the sacrifice that was willing to sacrifice, that was willing to, to suffer for others. Thank you that you put that suffering and that shame upon yourself so that we could, uh, Comfort others with the comfort with which you comfort. Lord, we love you and praise you. We rejoice in your in your life, the new life you've given us, and we pray that we would walk in your ways now and forever, praising you, glorifying you, and finding that rest that you offer in Jesus' name.